You're listening to the Eastside Church Sermon Podcast Series. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, inclusive, and justice-oriented. We are thrilled that you found our podcast, and if you'd like to learn more about our community, visit our website at eastsideatl.org. This morning's message is a little bit of a unique one, I suppose, in the broader scope of the series. We're going to take a minute this morning and ask how it is the East Side in particular engages with this Bible we have. We have more than just this one. There's some other ones in the pews too, but this Bible. And we're going to do that this morning by looking at a section of scripture which is contained in a letter written by the Apostle Paul to one of his ministry colleagues. He was a mentor to this person, kind of a a teacher, and uh, this this recipient was an understudy of his. Also, I happen to share the name of this individual, Timothy. It is written from 2 Timothy, so what appears to be the second of two letters that Paul sends to him. And our our, our reading this morning comes from the third chapter of this letter. So friends, for those of you in the space, I invite you as you're able to stand with me in body or in spirit. And for those who are participating virtually, I invite you to embrace a posture that allows you to hear the word of God. Paul writes, now that you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in my life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, my suffering, the things that happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, in Lystra, what persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But wicked people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, I ask that these words that I have prepared might become, that you might translate them to be your word for your people in this time. God, may they be helpful. May you speak through them. And where necessary, God, speak in spite of me. And as I preach, I pray that the words of my mouth and the collective meditation of all of our hearts would indeed be found good, right, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. God, our rock, God, our redeemer, God, our hope, God, our salvation. All of this we pray in the name of the Christ. And everyone said, 
Amen. Friends, you may be seated. Why might you ask, would a church take a Sunday to talk about the Bible? (laughs) Maybe you wouldn't ask that. I don't know. But it's one of these things that kind of we assume, but like many things in our lives, sometimes it's good to stop for a minute and take something that we make assumptions about and actually take some, some conscious, intentional thought with that reality. And because many of you have probably heard enough the phrase, the Bible said, said it, I believe it, that, and you all know how that ends. Somebody virtually knows, I'm sure of it. Settles it, thank you. Yes, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. Because that is a thing people say in places and times, it's important for us to have a morning from time to time where we talk about scripture. Because there are these kind of cultural idioms like the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it, that need to be deconstructed and need to be looked at and discussed as faith communities. And it's also kind of interesting that this does happen to be Reformation Sunday. And if you're not familiar with Reformation Sunday, it's the day in the liturgical year, mainly celebrated by our Lutheran friends that celebrates Martin Luther pounding up his 95 theses on the door of the church in Germany that escapes my memory right in this moment. But the main point of, of Luther's Reformation was that not nearly enough attention is being given to scripture and far too much attention is being given to sort of extra, you know, extra church tradition and layers of teaching that stand above, aside of, of actual scripture itself. And for Luther, that was important because it was in his own reading of the Bible and in teaching the Bible that he had his overwhelming experience of the grace of God and his revelation that indeed grace is a gift through the work of Christ for the individual. It is not something that all of the indulgences in the world could actually make any real impact between one's relationship between themselves and God. It's, it's a gift offered to all of God's children And for Luther, that was such a transformative experience that for him, this idea of the solas, and specifically for this morning, speaking to the sola scriptura, Bible alone, scripture alone, became sort of the resounding gong of the the Reformation charge. But the problem is, is that Luther actually, though he said sola scriptura, he didn't really mean like sola, sola, sola scriptura. He didn't mean like just leave church and take your Bible because there was still not yet a bound Bible at this point. But if there were, take your bound Bible and go lock yourself in your closet for the rest of your life between you and God and your Bible. That's not what he, he meant and he, didn't certain, he certainly didn't believe that the Bible was to be detached from the faith community or from the church. What he meant was... There was far too many external and 
larger Catholic teachings that had sort of been layered upon Scripture that was making it hard sometimes just to get back to the book of Ephesians or something like that or to Romans and to actually read the text because there was so much out here. Sola Scriptura, though, with sort of the enlightenment world that follows and then sort of Western individualism winds us up in a country like ours today where we do hear this type of phrase, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it. The problem is, is that if you ask people, well, which, which version of the Bible are you talking about, right? And I don't even mean which English version. You can go back to the manuscripts, you start bringing conversations around the Dead Sea Scrolls, you can talk about the Septuagint versus the Hebrew text, and all kinds of questions arise, and probably the person's eyes will gloss over like you all are. And it leads us very quickly to this conversation around what Paul says to Timothy in the text this morning, where he says that Scripture is inspired by God, which is a, a definition that we find in, in the Bible, but it needs fleshing out a little bit. Scripture is inspired by God. What is Scripture? What is the Bible? As I was thinking about these questions in preparation for this morning, the image came to mind of, of two individuals sitting at a nice restaurant, maybe down like in New York or something, the kind of restaurant you, know, you can kind of walk, walk by and like, see the fancy people in the, in the windows, eating and drinking. And I just imagine two, two humans who've never met one another, they're sitting down for the first time. And then I imagined like circle, like invisible circles around each of them. Like, like, and then the table was in the middle where their circles kind of overlapped a little bit. And I was imagining the conversation that they might have if they've never met, but they, maybe they're on a date or maybe they're work, maybe they're, you know, from different companies and they're wanting to meet one another, who knows, who knows? But good conversation, right? You kind of start outside of the circles, talking about the weather, or isn't New York great? Or isn't New York terrible? Well, don't, don't, I'll come back to that. But you start outside of the circles and then you work your way in and you kind of test the waters with the other person. So if you, if you start with the weather and start with, I don't know, if you're in Atlanta, start, you know, talk about the Braves right now, you know, something big. But then if you're trying to really move beyond objective, like, data knowledge about the person, the kind of stuff you could find out if you just, like, did a background search on them, like, whether, like, where they were born, how old they are, that sort of thing, then at some point you're going to have to move from, like, what state were you born in? And are your parents still together? And do you have siblings? Like, all of that you could find on Google. At some point, you're going to have to move to, do you like New York, right? Do you like Italian? Because we're at an Italian restaurant. Do you enjoy being a nurse or a teacher? What vocational trajectory do you imagine? Is it to stay in 
You see, you move from out there to beginning to ask about the actual person sitting across from you. And if you like the person, if it is a date or something, then by the end of the date, you want to honestly like have gathered as much of the, that information as possible. You want to ask as many subjective questions and learn about the person and how they relate to the world as you can. The more you, you get into their, their circle, the more that it shows them that you care about them. And then, of course, the, the parts where the circles converge, if the two of you can find those spaces, oh, you both absolutely love going to baseball games, right? The Braves' big picture led you to this more specific thing that you share. And I was thinking about this in terms of two humans getting to know each other. And then I was thinking about what is the Bible? And my mind took one of these two people with you know, the table in the middle and it elevated it to God and then a human down here at the table. And I was like, now that's trickier. That's harder. To sit down at the table with the eternal, infinite creator of the universe, you know, you've got your little circle and then God's got God's infinite being. <laughs> And to try to have that conversation and try to negotiate that and to learn from that and experience that, that's, that's maybe why sometimes when you hear pastors or people or Christians trying to speak to what scripture is, to what the Bible is, we, we sometimes can use more words than we mean to because it's, it's, it's this big expansive reality because as I understand the Bible, I understand it to be this place of convergence, this relational place where the eternal maker, creator God of the universe is seeking to be in relationship with Abraham and then Abraham's growing family, descendants, what ultimately becomes the Jewish people. And what do we have in the Bible? What we have human beings' memories of these interactions with God. Because this all happens before, of course, the creation of the of videography and the capacity to record something, which means the only recording device they had was what but their mind, their brain. And then later when they got to a place where they had some parchment and I guess a quill and some ink, they would write it down as best they could remember what those memories were telling them which means that scripture is at some level human memories about these critical interactions with God seeking to reveal God's self to us and us, I guess, seeking to reveal ourselves to God. And it's, it's this collection of these. And as we read them, as we come to them, we're, we're peering into and we're seeing and we're experiencing ancient human beings' individual and collective experiences of a God who had come to them and was progressively revealing who God is to them and, and them receiving that and experiencing it over time and struggling with it 
and, and frankly, sometimes getting it really wrong. And I think you have to know that Christian tradition, specifically John's gospel, says that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, it was with God in the beginning, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word being the Christ, which means that the Christian tradition believes that the Christ who becomes Jesus of Nazareth, right? The same Christ was with, with the God in the creation of, of the world. It also means that the same Christ was in existence when Israel went into Canaan and essentially wiped out a whole people group so that they could receive the land. Now, I think that's important to say if we believe in the pre-existence of the Christ who becomes Jesus. Jesus who says things like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you. I think there, there is within our own tradition a way of looking at scripture and saying scripture actually interprets and critiques scripture. And I don't think it's a far far-flung idea to say Jesus probably would have been critical of Joshua and would have been critical of that, that movement, of, of, of the way that Canaan was, was entered and taken over. And, and all of this is taking place not outside of the Bible, but we're doing all of this inside of Scripture, inside the world that it creates. And we see Jesus doing this over and over again when he looses and he binds Torah, when he says, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you, I'm saying, I'm teaching you. We see this with Paul and the Jerusalem council and the inclusion of Gentiles without the necessity to be circumcised. That was outright heresy in many, in many people's mind. We see within the Bible itself a way to read scripture and a way to interpret. And our own tradition gives us this lovely thing called a quadrilateral. And if you type that into Amazon, you cannot order a quadrilateral. I wish I could, I would, I'd buy one, and every time I'd have a hard theological problem, I'd stick it in my quadrilateral and I'd turn the crank and it would give me the answer. But that's not how it works. Quadrilateral is a way of discerning of, of wisdom, of asking hard theological questions. And it, it, it makes us ask questions about, within the Methodist tradition, how do we feel about female leadership in the pulpit and in our churches? And the quadrilateral is how our tribe came to the conclusion that yes, there are parts of scripture that seek to say that, that men should be the only ones in leadership. There are other parts of scripture that push back against that. That would be the, the scripture part of the quad. But there's also the tradition part of the quad, the second pillar. And the tradition part of the quad would, would give us another lens. So what did the ancient church patriarchs and patristics have to say about this? And, and what does church history look like? And then we would move to, to reason. That's the third pillar of the quadrilateral or the third lens. And, 
and use human reason to come to the conversation and we say, well, is it reasonable to say that a man must be the only one to, to be the, the pastor in the church? And then you come to experience and we say, what's our experience of this real time as a human being here on the earth? What's my experience of a, f- a female preaching and leading and, and doing the work? And, and you, you, we utilize this quadrilateral, and it's not even a mathematics, mathematical system. It's not like we add it up, so we got two and two, so it's a tie or, or whatever. It's more of a way to prayerfully engage. We start with scripture, we then we go to tradition, and then we go to, to reason, then we go to experience. And this is the Wesleyan, the, the early Methodist way of kind of rounding out the, the over-accentuation of sola scriptura of saying, no, 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 the broader church matters and what we've said matters and our personal human experience with this matters. And much of the time, it can be the case that just as in Acts chapter 15, we see, even though they didn't use the language of the quadrilateral in Acts, we see human experience trump scripture and tradition in their decision to allow the Gentiles to be included without being circumcised and without becoming fully Jewish. Experience of the, the body of the active, living, moving Holy Spirit in the world moved the early church to lean towards experience, which is pretty remarkable. And it's pretty remarkable that it's in sacred scripture itself. Scripture reveals to us a way of interpreting itself and a way of interpreting our world today. And we as Methodists have this beautiful way of engaging we call the quadrilateral where we take these four prisms or or, or ways of looking at a theological question. And ultimately, the Methodist Church, thanks be to God, we fully affirm female leadership. We have a female bishop in this in this annual conference, she's amazing. And, and God blesses that, that hard and discerning work. And, and I, don't, I don't think that just flat, simplistic, immature readings of scripture are what we're called to, but we're called to really prayerfully, deeply wrestle with, engage, and, and really ask and consider Spirit of the living God, where are you moving and acting right now in the world today? And how can I use the Bible as essentially a a platform or an interacting place between myself and the church and what's going on in the world? It becomes sacred scripture, not when it's just words on a page, because that you might not even be able to read that language, right? But it becomes when the understanding of the living God meets the human in the reception of the idea or of the teaching or of the truth, that's when it becomes scripture is when it's received in the way that God wants it to be received in us. And then it does its work in us. So read your Bibles, friends. I mean, or don't, but I, I, I think you should. Start with the Gospels. And the best thing to do, if you're not familiar with the the whole of the 66 books of the Protestant Bible, 
Start with the four Gospels. Start with Mark. Mark is the shortest. And whenever you come to something in Mark that you don't really understand, like it's a reference to a guy named Abraham or a reference to Exodus or to Moses or to Sinai, go to Exodus or go to to Genesis and, and study those texts in tandem with Mark. And it's in that back and forth between the two that, that you'll, you, you'll start to really open up to this bigger picture of what the Bible is doing and this larger story of a God who loves, a God whose heart is broken when humanity runs from God, and a God who is resilient in God's search for and coming toward humanity throughout. And a God who's, who's coming toward us culminates in Jesus, in the Christ. And a God who right now in this gathering and in what we're doing as church, God is seeking to engender and, and to create and to build and to make in us this desire and longing for exactly what Chelsea was talking about in, in the video this morning of safety, of this like, of this home that is God's home for us forever. That's, that's this hope that we have is for this new creation where God will meet us and we will together be home. And, and the scriptures point us to that and finally, just remember as you read the Bible, always take it back to Jesus, to the Christ, and to his teachings on love God with all, all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And any interpretation of scripture that does violence against those children of God whom God loves should be set aside and reconsidered. So friends, may we be faithful, may we be careful, may we be mature, and may we be deep and studied knowers and readers of our sacred text together. In the name of the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer, amen. My name is Megan Davis, and I have been invited to lead us in our prayers of the people today. And on this glorious day, whether or not you are coming off of a celebration of the Braves, the Tigers, the Dogs, or an amazing new initiative. I mean, there are just so many wonderful things happening here today. Um, but as we come together, um, let us enter into this time of communal prayer with praise on our lips and in our hearts. And uh, whenever I say, Lord, in your mercy, please respond with, hear our prayer. Let us pray. Lord God, we call upon your name, Hosanna in the highest. We praise you for all you have done for us. Thank you for making us weak so we could understand in the sharpest sense that no one has to walk this world alone. Thank you for letting us stand in your goodness, bathe us in your peace and understanding so we lean not on our own. Let us step into the glory of your light, and in times of doubt and confusion, let us feel its presence even as we are surrounded by the dark. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, we pray for our community and city. Let the impending election appoint leaders who will stand up for those marginalized, those without platform or politics. May you empower leaders who would keep the city safe and intact and do so with integrity. 
Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Lord, thank you for our country and our world. As many of us feel disillusioned by our brethren here and across the globe who cheer at the blocking of safety measures for vulnerable populations and the stripping away of protection and provision for those who need it most, we pray that you will set it right and ignite an urgency within us and our leaders to fix these inequalities. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, let this world's powerful so many of whom publicly call you sovereign, let them stop for once and understand that the preservation of their own power is not the highest echelon of winning this brief flash we call life. Bury in their hearts the truth that if they want to be immortal, if they want legacy, if they want to leave their work intact by God, truly a human's life is measured by what he gives away and not by what he keeps, and surely to your ears not by what he takes from others. Bury it, Lord. We ask you to plant the seed of discontent at their own desire. Turn that cyclical slice of humanity on its head and let the hole in their souls that can never be filled, that says they are not good or happy or rich or powerful enough, let that drive be inverted to say they can never give enough. They can never love enough. They can never reach out their hand to their brethren enough and miracle of miracles at these thoughts which become actions, let them be healed. Let them count their blessings by the blessings they create for others. Let that be the vicious cycle, a savagery of goodness spreading across our lands, oh, the humanity. And finally, let us see that we too are those powerful few because we occupy spaces of privilege. Let us never be satisfied at giving, helping, loving enough. And in this, let us all be healed. Let us embody your hands and feet and with audacity, let us love our own. And every day with our hands over the scar of our hearts, let us say thank you. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Now I would like to invite you to a time of silent confession and meditation. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Christ, you are forgiven. Well, friends, please stand for the benediction. People of faith, go now in the eternal and never-ending love of our maker, our creator, the God who is with you now and is going to go with you as you walk out those doors and is going to stay with you until we meet again. And may you be a conduit of that God's work in this world until we meet again. Amen? Amen. Go in peace, my friends. We hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to connecting with you soon. If you'd like to experience our full church services, you can find them at youtube.com slash eastsidechurchatl. And if you'd like to support the work we're doing here at Eastside, you can find our giving portal at our website, eastsideatl.org. Be well.